everybody. And welcome to That's Life, the show where Charlie Harari promised us that the sun will shine tomorrow. And frankly, at this point, I'm holding him to it. Because if I see one more drop of rain, Harari, I'm screaming Sandy and running out of the five towns. I can't deal with the flooding, man. I can't deal with the flooding. All right, I feel better. Good morning, folks. Thanks for listening. I am Miriam L. Wallach, blogger, writer, general manager here at the Nachum Siegel Network. You can find me here every Thursday. Please, God, at 10 a.m. But with this weather, it's been dicey, folks. It's been dicey right after Charlie and right after and right before Nachum's live lunch. As I hope to bring you a little entertainment, a little news, and a little relief that the life you are leading is not nearly as wacky as mine. And Avrami, I know I've said this before that I don't think um, I really truly mean those words until I've just passed another week of craziness. Um, and that is that is certainly, certainly so in the last 48 hours. I'll talk to you about it in a second. Coming to you from the home of the Nachum Siegel Network on the beautiful Lower East Side, I am joined by Avram. What's doing, Avrami? How are you? You know, I'm I'm dry, and I'm happy to be out of my car. As I told Avrami on my way in, as I called him at about 8.20, and I said, I know I have an hour and 40 minutes left to be on the air, but frankly, I don't think I'm going to make it. There was... Uh, there were cars here, cars there, cars were frankly everywhere. There, there was nowhere to go. The water, there's nowhere to go. Um, between the drive to Norpak, the drive down to Norpak was great, smooth. And I'd like to again thank Nahum, Mark, and ZK. It was a phenomenal team. It was a lot of, you know, singing in the car and license plate games as we're driving down the highway. No, not really. Um, I just wanted to see what your facial reaction would be. And by the way, it worked perfectly. Amazing. You're, you're a great audience, Remy. Um, and we, the drive down was wonderful to DC. It was a very productive day. And as Dachem mentioned yesterday on the air, we had a phenomenal opportunity on Tuesday to tour, um, the Senate, the House, and the White House from a, yeah, it was pretty ridiculous, um, from a press point of view and fr- frankly, from a technological point of view, uh, which was like Candyland for ZK, you know, getting to see all the wires and the racks and the way everything works and, and to hear that the White House press corps, um, is in a room that floods when it rains a lot. Yeah, it's pretty, it was not ha-ha funny because to think about all the equipment in there and the fact that it could all short when the weather is bad like it was yesterday. There were flat, there were flood warnings, like our alerts were going off on our phone, um, to let us know that there were flood warnings throughout DC. And I will tell you that they lived up to their reputation. A street caved in in Baltimore. It was Are you on, serious? It was on like one of the AOL top not, I don't think it was near my area, but uh, there was a, one of the top AOL stories was that this street just totally caved in. Holy and cars cow. Going, yeah. That's crazy. I, well, the truth of the matter is, is I believe it, because when we got on the highway, um, we had stopped in Baltimore to get something to eat and to meet with somebody for, for a couple of minutes. Where'd you guys eat? Well, where else? Was, we, and we went to Dougie's. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and shout out to Hanania Kramer from Cole Run Productions. We were able to see Hanania for a couple of minutes. He's a good friend of the network and has always a good friend of Jame and the AM. Um after we got on the road from Baltimore and I guessed up the car, I, I, I looked at Nahum, who was riding shotgun, and I said, it can't be like this the whole way, meaning the teeming rain. And by God, it was. And while um, we were re- we really made nice time on the way down to Norpak, that, no, not so much on the way home. Um, it was it was very trying. It, at no point did it let up. At no point did we did we have that... Sun will come out tomorrow moment. It was, uh, nished. It was nished. Yeah. And I'm looking outside now. There's no sun. It's Charlie. supposed to be pretty decent over the weekend. <laughs> yeah. Well, Charlie, I know where you live. I'm telling you right now. I'm coming over, banging on the door if I don't see any sun. Um, it was a lot of time in the car, a lot of driving time. So, um, and I, by the way, shout out to the, uh, students last night. 
the PhD students at Azraeli at Yeshiva University that I was able to work with last night, and it's Dr. Rona Novik, uh, Dr. David Pelkowitz. They were incredibly gracious hosts as I was able to do some media training with their PhD students. And it did start late because because of the weather, and I got back late, but that was always, it is always a rewarding experience. I feel like there's a lot of YU talk going on today, and for good reason. I mean, there was um, a lot going on on Jamie and AM this morning, and then they had the, Nachum had the Maccabees, Nachum had Rabbi Rakefet and Rabbi Rockoff, and of course, Charlie starts with a Maccabees song, and we also have uh, members of YU coming on this show today, so there's a lot going on, but frankly, we, we got we got stuff to get out to. Anyway, shout, if you're a new listener to the show, thank you for taking a break from your day to tune in. If you are a returning listener, thanks as always for making us part of your day. Shout out, by the way, to Naomi Smigel of Renana, Israel. It is her birthday today, so shout out to Naomi. Happy birthday to you, Yom Huladat Sameach. I wish you many, many more wonderful years, and thanks as always for being my friend. If Miriam L. Wallach once a week is just not enough for you, do what Al Sherman did. Friend me on Facebook, send me an invite on LinkedIn. You can also shoot me an email, miriam at nachamsegel.com. I will not respond to you during the show. Not being rude, just being honest. But I will get back to you afterwards. Please also follow us on Twitter, Nachum Siegel Net. That is all one word. And Miriam L. Wallach, all one word. Shout out, by the way, to the entire Sherman family. After having Rabbi Charles Sherman on the air last week, which is a great interview, I'm now officially Facebook friends with the into- almost the entire family. And that actually is very rewarding. Let's go to our favorite segment, which I forgot to do last week. So I was thinking about opening two fortune cookies today, but I have to... Um, wait for the sock to come back from Avrami as to whether or not I can do two fortune cookies. He's actually just conferring in the other room with Yael Unterman, who is the author and noted lecturer who has joined us, and she's speaking to Avrami in the other room. So let's do with our first fortune cookie. I could use some good fortune. Come on, Confucius. You will have many friends when you need them. Avram, what do you think about that? You will very ma- I, I, They know you are in the other room. You will have many friends when you need them. What? Friend in need is a friend indeed. Now, okay, all right, so we like that one. But, Avrami, I just want to let you know that I let our listeners know that because I did not open a fortune cookie last week, I was waiting for your psaac to see if I could open two this week. All right, whatever. He's very makele. We also missed on Pesach. That's true. That's true. That's true. Somebody asked me, by the way, why I didn't do Metafest on Pesach. I'm like, because it's Chometz. All right, hold on one second. Here's the second one. Avram, you feeling good about this one? You feel better? All right, you know what? He's not, anybody want to play poker with Avrami any day because, um, you know, as a cure for worry, work is better than whiskey. Avrami's not so sure about that one. He likes the first one better. So let's go back to the first one. If you if you will have many friends when you need them. All right. That is that is beautiful. Anyway, national holiday. Today is the first day of month. It is National Jewish American Heritage Month. Keep an eye out, folks, for all the Jewish American heritage events near you. It's also National Vinegar Month. Pretty wacky if you ask me, and I'm sure there's actually no correlation between the two things. Also, it's National Revise Your Work Schedule Month. Ha! Like there's something wrong with my work schedule now? Come on, people. Uh, it's Amtrak Day, Avrami. It's Amtrak Day. It's Mother Goose Day, which I think is fun. It's also School Principals Day. Shout out to Miss Joy Hammer, to Ms. Mrs. Cindy uh, Goldberg, to everyone at Hafter, to Ms. Naomi Littman in the high school, and, of course, to Rabbi David Kupchik and Dr. Rochelle Brand in the middle school. They educate all of my kids, and they've survived to tell the tale. So shout out to them. And um, I, there was one more I wanted to – oh, yes. Avrami, this one's really for you. You ready? Is your mic on? Is your mic on? It is now. It's National Batman Day. All right. All right. <laughs> We're going to have to figure out how some way to celebrate that. I'm not sure what that is. And, frankly, I do not have a cape. Sushi for lunch. 
Sushi for lunch is a correlation to Batman how? Because I want sushi for lunch. All right, that's something else. We'll have to, uh, yeah, see what see what the boss says about that. Anyway, you're listening to That's Live here at the Nachum Siegel Network. And as she gets all her papers in order, which is great, Yael Unterman is here. She is the Jerusalem-based scholar and author. She lectures and teaches Torah internationally, including bibliodrama workshops. She has published in many genres, including academic fiction, reviews, poems, and more. Her first book, Nechama Leibowitz, teacher and Bible scholar, was nominated a 2009 National Jewish Book Awards finalist, which we will talk to her about in a second. And her second book is The Hidden of Things, 12 Stories of Love and Longing. She holds a BA in Psychology and Talmud from Bar Ilan, an MA in Jewish History from Toro College, and an MA in Creative Writing from Bar Ilan University. Well, good morning, Yael. I think you finished the entire slot with my bio. <laughs> and this is the abridged version. Yep. This is the shorter one that you sent me. Thank you so much for making the trek. Pleasure. I appreciate it. And um, you got into New York when? Just uh, last night. Oh. It wasn't so easy. Sorry. I have to say, I got quite drenched. <laughs> I am sure. Well, from London, this may be like, you I know, came, home. I came from Israel. Oh, uh, uh, all right. So yeah. then somebody, as I joked while we were driving back from D.C. yesterday, I said, all right, who said Mashiv HaRuch instead of Marit HaTal? <laughs> um, but and we were on the phone, actually. At, well, this is total tangent. We were on the phone yesterday from the car with somebody from Israel and um, and Nahum said to that person, is it raining where you are? And he's like, new, no, it stopped raining five months ago for us. So, mm. <laughs> so welcome to New York. Thank you. And you're here specifically for a purpose. Um, yeah, well, I'm here to do some uh, teaching and also to do some promoting for my new book. I didn't realize you were teaching here also. Yeah, I'll be scholar in residence at the Kali Shul over Shabbat. Right, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. And you're talking about your new book, which is getting wonderful, wonderful reviews. It's called The Hidden of Things. I actually have a copy here in my hand. Uh, Twelve Stories of Love and Longing. What was your inspiration for this book? It's a great picture on the back, by the way. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Um, so, well, basically, um, I've been a writer since I was very little. I think I wrote my first book when I was nine um, in England at the time, there was some nine-year-old who'd published a book already about a family of fruit. And I was just like, I've got to, you know, also get my book out quickly. No way. Time's passing. Oh. Anyway, I failed completely. <laughs> I got rejected. I sent the pub- book to publishers when I was 14. It came back with fish and chip stains on it saying, No sorry. way. Sorry, not, not, you know. Anyway, uh. so that was, and then I forgot about fiction for a long time. But then in 2000 and. Four, I joined the master's degree in creative writing at Bariline. It's in English. It was founded by a woman called Shandy Rudolph, who unfortunately passed away young. Her mother lives here in New York. Right. Her parents. And um, during that program, they asked us to bring in short stories so that we could workshop them with each other rather than part of a novel. I hadn't really ever written short stories before, but I thought, okay, let's give this a try. And uh, so I began to write these short stories, and these characters began to enter my life. It was, it was like I was channeling them, you know, wow. onto the page. And this is how some of these, you know, wacky characters were born. And uh, I wrote several of these stories during the master's degree itself, and my thesis was five of, five of the stories. And when the degree was over, I continued to write more stories, and I, I saw them coming together, and I saw how the characters could interact with each other as well. So even though it's a short story collection... The stories are actually interlinked, which is not always true of every short story collection. Right. The characters recur, they're friends with each other. So it's kind of halfway to a novel. There, it's interesting that you mentioned that um, about the, the connection between the stories. Um, when, I, when I was working on my master's in English, and yours is in creative writing, um, when I was working on my master's in English, it took me a while to give of myself into a short story to become committed like when you when you're when you're a reader and you hold a book you have the whole thing in your hand and you're like all right I'm with this till the end 
and I am, I'm committed to the book. But it's hard to commit to a few pages. And not that your short stories are short. They're really not. But when you look like a short story like The Lottery by Shirley Jackson, which um, is just a couple of pages but so meaty, you really learn a lesson about how engaged you can be in such a short amount of time. Right. Some of my friends write very short stories. There's even a genre called flash fiction, which is like yeah, half a page, one page. And I've got a book who's published, a friend who's published a book of short of flash fiction stories. And that is what's amazing is that within a few sentences, you've been thrown into a world, right. introduce some characters, something's happened and the story's finished all at once. Um, I'm not like that. I'm very wordy. I like to sort of develop things and have themes and motives and whatever. So my short stories, as you said, are very long. One, the longest story in this book is 10,000 words, which is... Right, for a short story. Yeah. So. Is pretty meaty. Yeah. Um, was that something that, that concerned you, that that short story was not in, in itself short? Well, the funny thing is that it, the character... Um, so that story is the story that's called Catamonster. And it's this blog by wacky blogger Emma, who's a British woman who's made Aliyah living in Jerusalem. And she's telling everybody about her insane Jerusalem dating life and all sorts of things that happen. And the funny thing is that that character is the kind of person who just goes on and on and on. And she opens her mouth and all kinds of rubbish comes out. And actually, in a slightly later story, I do something a little postmodern. The character steps out of character and becomes like an actress playing the character. And she starts to complain about the part she's been given. And she says, I go on and on and on about rubbish. This is the lines that I've been given. I'm not even being paid overtime. Funny. You know, so th- right. th- there's, there's a reason why that story is the longest, because she just won't shut up, Emma. How many of the characters do you personally relate to? Uh, is that a bad question? Are well, we not allowed no, to talk about that? No, it's okay. I mean, <laughs> it's a very personal book. You know, it's this is, uh, you know, this is quite close to home. I, you know, I am a single woman living in Catamon in Jerusalem. So, you know, anybody who says is this autobiographical, you're like, duh. <laughs> now, that's not to mean that everything in the book happened to me because it didn't. And you also say that not all the names are, act, you know, are, are reflections or, or of course, right? I mean, there's only one real named person in the entire book. Everybody else is fictional, but some of the things in there did happen to me or friends of mine you know truth is stranger than fiction you can't make this stuff up and i also i speak about sort of the great author in the sky mm. he writes our stories and people steal them and publish a book and when you write based on a true story you're basically stolen one of god's stories ah, right ah. or you've been you know you've been given the gift of it right anyway so you asked which characters you know i sort of relate to or people ask me which one of them is you or obviously there's bits of me in all of them What's shocking to me is when people say to me, you're Emma, you're Catamonster, because oh. this woman is a highly insensitive, you know, sort of brash person <laughs> who just, you know, opens her mouth and goes on and on. I really don't see myself in quite that way. But maybe I have a side of myself that I'm, you know, in denial about, or maybe it would be fun to be Emma from time to time, you know. I would imagine that for all of us, it'd probably be fun to be <laughs> Emma from time to time, being able to, you know, get it off your chest, tell, tell people how you really feel. Yeah. Um, it, it's funny, though, that you mentioned about um, being single and living in Katamon because you had mentioned to me before that there's a lot when you speak. There's a lot to mention about that as well. So it's not like you're just providing um, or discussing your text. You're also bringing your life into into the conversation. For sure. And I think that some of the best books are, are when people are writing, you know, their life into right. fiction. If it's not a memoir, if it's fiction, it. it you know the material, you know it inside out, you know its emotional contours, and so it becomes realistic. When people read it, they say it feels very real. In fact, I had one guy who lives in Catamon saying to me, I opened the first story and I read it, and I said, 
yeah, this is my life. What are you, what are you trying? I have, there's no chiddush here. What are you trying to tell me? But, I mean, that's not the usual response. Actually, what's interesting is that this opens up the world of singles to people who aren't so familiar with it. Like I have um, a secular aunt living in Ramat Gan, and she read the book, and she said, ah, now I understand Yael's world wow. much better. And that's actually part of my, if there's, a, if there's an agenda hmm. in the book, I didn't write the book from a place of agenda, but if there is an agenda in the book, it's that people should understand a little better what, what 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 it's about i mean you know how how single people live the difficulties the challenges the joys you know um just like any book you read that opens a world up for you um of of the characters in that in that book and you understand them better there's a lot of empathy that goes on when you read a book you're sucked into that world and right. you you so something in, if it's a good book something inside you changes even if just for a while so so that was part of, of what was going on there. But the price that I pay for it is that, you know, it's a little exposing in right, certain ways. Absolutely. It's a very private realm. And the truth is I want to thank one of my uh, professors, Mark Mirsky, who's actually here in New York. He's the editor of, uh, chief editor of Fiction Magazine, and he teaches at, uh, I think it's called City College, or I might be wrong. Sorry. City College <laughs> is very well known. Yeah, so he's, I think he's the head of the department there in creative writing, but sorry, Mark, if I got it wrong. <laughs> and, um, and he came in from America and taught us one semester, and he's a figure that's larger than life, and he said to us right near the beginning, write what you're afraid to write about. Wow. So people did, and that was scary. And when I started to do that, this is what came out. I was afraid to write about the difficulties and pain of being a single in Katamon. Was it cathartic? Um, or you're not there yet, so you can't answer that. No, it's been, <laughs> a, it's been a long process. This book has taken nine years. So I think that uh, working with these wow. materials for that long and now speaking about them and sort of being out there, there is something about it that's cathartic. Um, what can be frustrating is when you find yourself feeling the same feelings still again that you wrote about eight years ago in a story and you're like this reminds me of the character that I wrote eight years ago you know why is this still right. you know repeating but there is a there's a growth and there's a development and you know I'm, I'm happy that I'm able to deal with these materials and actually be out in public talking about them and I can you know I can do that we had an um a chef on the <coughs> air a couple of oh it must have been a couple of years ago at this point and he said that it went to a um kosher cooking school in Yerushalayim and, and he said that the one food he would not make is eggplant. He couldn't stand eggplant, couldn't stand eggplant. And he walked into school, to class one day, walked into the kitchen one day in his, you know, chef's coat, etc. And the instructor had brought in cases and cases of eggplant and looked at him and said, this is how you're spending your day. And it was such a moment for him in saying, like, you have to face what you don't like. You have to face it. That's that's life. Right. And you have to rip that Band-Aid off and deal with it head on. So it's interesting you should say that, Miriam, because the book is called The Hidden of Things. And I do have a bit of an obsession with, like, what's hidden and what's revealed. What should we tell people about? What should we show people? And what should we keep inside? So, you know, we're religious Jews. We have a strong ethos of modesty. Right. And... Uh, Modesty is not just clothes. It's also about, you know, keeping certain things that are delicate, private, and inside. Um, and we do that a lot. But on the other hand, when you keep things too secret, people think that they're the only person in the world experiencing something. They feel very isolated. Sure. And then when they read a book or talk to a person who's open and sharing, it's such a relief. There's such a, a, a bond of community. Absolutely. And so even in the book itself, I'm trying to maintain a delicate balance between the things that I'm revealing about myself and about this community and between the things, some of the things which should remain private or at least just hinted at because... Because there's modesty and there's my protection of my friends and, and you know, Absolutely. Peers. Absolutely. Yael Unterman joins us. She's the author of 12 Stories of Love and Longing entitled <coughs> The Hidden of Things. It is out from Yotzeret Publishing. 
um, which you give a tremendous amount of credit to at the beginning of the book, by the way. I'm not sure everyone appreciates their publisher <laughs> the way that you do, but obviously you were, you were really nurtured. Well, um, first of all, in today's market, it's really hard to find a publisher. Okay, mm. print books in general are, I think, a dwindling market. Although I think they say that uh, within the Jewish market, maybe the religious Jewish market's actually growing. Right, I'm not sure. We need to hold our books. Okay, right, like, you know, Shabbos. Exactly. You know. But um, I need to be able to do this. <laughs> For those of you who couldn't hear that, that was me flipping the pages of the book. You need to be able to hold it. I love holding books. Somebody asked me recently, not to interrupt, I'm sorry, I apologize, but somebody asked me recently, they're like, oh, is that from the library? I'm like, no, <laughs> I bought it. And I'm uh, props to the libraries. I'm not saying we should get rid of libraries, but there's something about growing your own personal library that is right. – very self, very fulfilling. But anyway. No, look, I was on the subway this morning and right next to me were three people reading real old fashioned print books. Good times. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, anyway, so it actually took me two and a half years just mm. to find a publisher. I had an agent. She tried with some of the main presses. They, they, they said lovely stories, but who's going to read them? Because there is something a little niche about it. it. Most of them, not all of them, most of them are about religious Jews. And, uh, so then I parted from my agent and just Googled madly to try and find, wow. you know, who I could send these stories to. You have to really believe in your product to, to, to sort of keep pushing in that way. You also have to honor your product. This is something that Nachum and I discuss a lot. It's respecting your product and not being, not willing or be willing to sacrifice certain things to make that deal or make something happen. Um, at the at the sacrifice of of your of your product. Yeah, and I feel like also being loyal to it. I yes. spent all these years. I wasn't just going to drop it. Right. Even you know even if it was hard going. Nine years is a commitment. Yeah. Well, the nine years included the publishing process, but at this point, this was four or five years ago, and uh, and I I found I discovered by googling um, this woman. Her name is Shana Gallion. And she's in St. Paul, Minnesota. Yep, you got it. Okay, I always get them mixed up by saying Missouri, by the way, Missouri and people shout at me. No, but Minnesota sounds very classy with a British accent, Minnesota. By the way. Oh, well, that was nice. I, gonna... <laughs> I have to tell you, when I was in Brovinder's first year, we did a play. And I don't know why. I mean, I was supposed to learn Torah, but we, we did this play. And I, myself and another British woman called Sharon Fluss played these two women from um, Wyoming or someplace like that or Dakota and when I said the line when I was homesteading in Dakota oh, everyone would laugh because it was, didn't sound like the, the character right. homesteading in Dakota oh you know. you know what you have to meet Naomi Nachman because Naomi Nachman is also an, a, uh, a host here at the Nachum Seal Network and she's Australian and she makes fun of us and our accents all the time and we I think she sounds hysterical and of course I've, I've tweeted out that the accent is fake just to be funny <laughs> even though it's completely not um, but there's there's something, you know, there's something very classy and just polished about the British accent I in know, general. And Don't ri- lose it. It's ridiculous. I can't take credit for it. It's I ridiculous. know. But it's, it's amazing. Anyway. Just keep doing what you're All doing. Right, we'll do that. So, yeah. So, basically, um, I found this woman and I wrote to her and she said she wrote on the website that she specializes in Jewish women's writings. I got really excited. I Talk wrote, about a shidduch. I wrote to her saying, hey, Jewish woman writing <laughs> over here, over here. I sent her the book and then like eight months passed and I was like, uh, oh, she didn't like it either. And then all of a sudden I get an email from her saying, hey, hello, I quite like your stories wow and that was amazing so yeah Shana has pushed this through and it took a long time but we're here call a kavod yeah. call a kavod let's talk for a second about the process of writing um a book of, of of short stories at what point do you say i have enough short stories in this book to to finish it as opposed to adding on three more does that make any sense it's, it definitely makes sense um well in this particular case i just kept writing what was good about this very elongated process was that I had time to add in a couple of few more stories. So I thought the collection was done. It was actually called 11 Stories of Yearning and it, <laughs> it was done, right? But then... Um, 11 plus one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, basically, um, 
there's a, a very nice website which I want to tell your listeners about called jewishfiction.net where you can read for free stories by Jewish and Israeli writers. It's run by a woman called Nora Gold from Canada. Jewishfiction.net. Yeah, it's actually fantastic. I'm glad I can give a plug to this uh, website. No, great. I, I, I'm not familiar with it, so thank you. Okay. And... Um, and yeah, basically, um, she, um, I, uh, there was a call for submissions. I don't know what. And I, um, I wrote another story that wasn't in my collection because I'd had this image pop into my mind of a woman walking around and finding gloves, single gloves, lone gloves in the snow and taking them home. This image, you know, a story is born out of an image or, a, right. you know, a little can be born out of a fragment. So I, I sat down and wrote that story. It's now in the collection. It's called Glove. And it's kind of a play, glove and love. And that's the that's that's and where that's the, the inspiration on for the, the front, cover, right? Yeah, there's there's a glove hanging on the cover, and um and so I sent her that story, not thinking about my collection at all, and she published it. So I put up the link on Facebook, and people said, "Oh, it was a really nice story. Really enjoyed it." So I said to myself, "Hey, you know, there's still time. We're still in the process. I could cram this in." So the eleven stories of yearning became twelve stories of love and longing, funny. and glove made it in. But you know, I mean, it's clear to me that the collection's done. I also don't see myself as writing loads of stories about single in the future maybe it'll happen people have said to me well we want another book we, or we, right. want, we want emma to write a whole book i don't know how they could stand that that's but, very interesting to know. be able to have one of your characters yeah. actually be the voice right. in that in an she's, entire novel she's a little bit like bridget jones those of you are familiar with that so sure. you know bridget jones got her another brit right you know um so theoretically but i don't know if i could like spend all that time with emma you know writing i've got other things that i want to write so uh, who knows? I don't know what will be in the future, but it's nice, nice feedback to get no, from people. No, uh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. By the way, let's just go over the details of your weekend and your and your appearance this week, mm-hmm. and also let people know how they can buy the book themselves. Again, it is called The Hidden of Things, which, by the way, as I read it over again and 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 really appreciate the title because I like the fact that um, you're using hidden here as as a noun. And, mm. I, and I think it's very interesting. It's a, it's well played. Thank you. Well played. The Hidden of Things, 12 Stories of Love and Longing by Yael Unterman. By the way, is it Unterman or Unterman? Well, we pronounce it Unterman. In London, people might call it Unterman, but it's a German name. And uh, really, it should have two ends at the end, but one of them dropped. So Unterman. I was wondering about that. Okay. Yeah. Um, anyway, so it's Tuesday, May 6th at 8 p.m. at the Karlbach Schul. Love in a Time of Conf- Conflict, contemporary fiction set in Jerusalem. Yeah. Um, the tickets, the, the $25 to $35 recommended. The Karlbach right. Schule, by the way, is at, we, yeah. is at 305 West 79th Street in Manhattan. Yeah. 305 West 79th Street. And that's with Ruhama King Foyerman. Correct, who has been who, a guest on this show before. That's right, who's got this fabulous book in the courtyard of the Kabbalist. And that's why we called it Love in a Time of Conflict, because in both our books we have people seeking love, while around them these this conflict rages in different right. ways, you know, Jews, Arabs, etc. So uh, we, we wanted to do a, this double author event. Uh, we have a relationship. We know each other from before. And uh, I'm excited. Oh, you should be. It's a great lineup. And it's, uh, there's you know, I, I don't usually speak this way, but the power of women at this moment is is really very exciting to me. And um, as somebody who is a, is alone, sort of in her field, everyone feels alone every once in a while. Um, it's exciting to see somebody uh, of your stature and Ruhama as being able to be the centerpieces of a night like this, where you both are featured, and that there is no male counterpart. And you're both from women who are accomplished women, who are accomplished authors, both finalists for the 2009 award. You can speak to that in a second. And um, I think it's it's exciting, and um, I don't want to use the word groundbreaking, 
But I think it's exciting and an important important moment to note that you are both able to headline and you've come together for this and it's in, and it's this big of an event. I don't know that I'm grasping. I don't know that I'm articulating myself well, but I think I'm getting the sentiment out. Yeah, thank you for saying that. I mean, I, I, so I've, I'm torn between the one side of me wants to say, yeah, women. Like it's it's this it's very unusual for two orthodox women, right, who are out there in the world and have you know won awards in the wider world or right. whatever to to be doing an event. Bichlal, never mind together. Right. Um, and that's why I'm, I'm, I'm excited about the power of this event. On the other hand, you know, it could also have been two men or, or a man and a woman. I mean, maybe, I don't know. I mean, my, my book does have a, a bit of a slant towards the female, but I do have male um, characters right. and protagonists as well. Um, and Ruhama's book is actually more focused on male protagonists. Correct. So um, I don't know. But, you know, there is a fact here, which is we've got, it is unusual. We've got these two women. And, and the question is also a very interesting question, which is what is the orthodox writing voice now out mm. there? And I'm, I'm excited. I think we're in a transition period where more and more orthodox writers are going to come out with good writing. That's right. Um, that will be, um, will make, make, you know, make tracks in the, in the outside world. I mean, Ruhama's novel was recognized by the Wall Street Journal. Correct. This, Barton Swaim said this is the best novel I've read all year right. nothing so, to do with our, our jewish world you know right so yeah so uh, thanks i'm excited about that event yeah no again and it's at the carl Bach School, 305 west 79th street in manhattan it is tuesday may 6th at 8 p.m at the carl Bach School. love in a time of conf- conflict contemporary fiction set in jerusalem 25 to 35 dollars recommended per person just one more question and then we're going to have to wrap it up how many how often do people try and set you up <laughs> There's a mother out there listening. There's a shotgun out there listening saying, I, I can help her. I can do something for her. How often do, do people either read your stories or contact you or live in Katamon and try and set you up? Look, uh, people do suggest offers. The truth is it's, it's a very tiring process. It's very difficult. Somebody tells you minimal facts about some man and then says, would you like to spend an evening with hmm. this person? If I was to turn to you, I have no idea what, I don't know anything about your personal life, right? But if I was to turn to you and say, I have a stranger for you to meet <laughs> next Wednesday. Right. right, you in? I want you to spend an evening of semi-intimate conversation with this person and I'll tell you his age and how many children he has and that he has a steady job. Are you in? Why would you want to do that? Right. So, I mean, you know, I've, I've done a lot of this. I've been out on many dates. And it's, it's great that I receive offers because not receiving offers are probably even worse. But I have to say that my preferred method is to meet naturally. Mm. Um, I've appointed Hashem as my matchmaker. And nice. he, he's been doing an interesting job. He's okay. sent us <laughs> some quite interesting fellows over the last couple of years. Um, and really, that's been my main source wow. of... Because it's just it's just more pleasant. It's less artificial. When many people have gotten married through the shidduch system, I'm, I'm happy it exists. But I'm just a little t- I'm, I'm exhausted. That's that's the truth. It's very very tiring. I hear you. And you want to maintain your your sanity and to remain a whole and healthy person. Right. So that's um no that I I, I completely I completely hear that I I I have very close friends on who live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan who are who are single and I hear their stories and. And I, I'm sure that you're both coming from similar places in terms of your frustrations um, as single women, you from Katamon, 
and them from Manhattan, though there will be discrepancies in the stories. I mean, you're not necessarily meeting at Starbucks, but you could be meeting at Cafe Cafe. There's, um, nevertheless, you're, you're coming from the same place. Right. I'll just add that. My last story is set in 2029 in the Upper West Side. It's Ugh. a futuristic story where the Godolium have gotten together and right. put together these decrees to solve the single situation. Like everybody has to live in special singles buildings and they have to go to dating coaches and parties and whatever. And it's a, I it's, found it to be a very dystopian. Yes. Correct. Right. And, and it's, uh, you know, it's somewhere between a little bit realistic and crazy. And I don't know where. <laughs> I'm not sure where on the line it is. So, you know, this is, I hope this is not the future, but, you know, we, it's, it's a problem. It's a growing problem and it's very painful. I, I, I commend you for speaking about it openly and I even give you even more props for being able to write about it. Yeah, Unterman, again, The Hidden of Things, 12 Stories of Love and Longing. People can buy it off of... Yeah, it's available on Amazon in ebook and print. And if you live in a different country, you can uh, order it in Israel or other countries. If you pop into my website, yaeluntuman.com, then if you click on the Hidden of Things page, there's all kinds of ordering uh, details over there. Excellent. Well, call a kavod to you. Thank, thank you, you so much for dropping by. Thank you. And um, I really hope for your sake that the weather changes. Okay, thank you. <laughs> and good luck Tuesday night. Yeah, thanks. My pleasure. And thanks for reaching out. You're listening to That's Life here at the Nachum Siegel Network. I want to make sure, by the way, to mention two events that are coming coming up um, actually in the Long Island area, one of which is uh, for Camp Hask. It is a promotion. It is an evening, a Malava Malka, this Matze Shabbos, this Saturday night, May 3rd, at the home of Bonnie and Heshi Shirts, 88 Margaret Avenue, Lawrence, New York, um, 945 Malava Malka, 1030 program. It's called An Evening Under the Stars to benefit hundreds of children and adults with special needs and developmental disabilities, benefiting Camp Hask. Um, the hostess has she shirts greetings from Rabbi Judah Michelle. He's the executive director of Camp Hask. And as you know, we are enormous, enormous, enormous fans of, um, of Rabbi Michelle. He is absolutely wonderful. And also t- the, the other person who's going to be speaking that night is Rabbi Menachem Penner. As I joked that this is a YU heavy, uh, network today, it seems. I'm not complaining about that, but it is, um, Rabbi Menachem Penner is the Morad to Asra of the Young Israel of Holliswood. He is also the Dean of the Rabbi Yitzchak Elchanan Theological Seminary and Undergraduate Torah Studies at Yeshiv University. He's a wonderful speaker, so I would highly recommend that if you can attend that event, you certainly should. The other thing I want to let you know is that this Sunday is the annual Hatzalah Barbecue. Uh, it is 6.30, is the, I should say the Rockaway Lawrence, the RL Hatzalah Barbecue, Sunday at 6.30 p.m. at the Sands in Atlantic Beach. It is our yearly opportunity for the community um, to show our support and our Hakar Satov to Hatzalah. We, um, I encourage you personally, I encourage you personally to show your Hakar Satov to Hatzalah. Um, as a Hatzalah wife and, um, and a semi-supportive Hatzalah wife, I do roll my eyes when my husband runs out in the middle of a meal and we're about to clean the table and all of a sudden, oh, there's a Hatzalah call. I, but I do know that they give a tremendous amount of themselves. And um, a shout-out to my husband and all the work that he and his his fellow Hevra members, because it is a Hevra Hatzalah, his fellow members give to the community. And it was a little bit of a flashback last night as I was driving through the rain and then showed up on Rockaway Turnpike that was completely flooded over and reminded me of everything that had gone on during Sandy. And it really was, forget that it was unpleasant. It was really very scary. And those were moments of complete heroism by members of Hatzalah. And I don't, I honestly do not say that lightly because they are, they're amazing. 
They're amazing. Hatzalah is amazing. So if you can attend at 6.30 p.m. Sunday uh, at the Sands in Atlantic Beach, and if you cannot attend, please do me a favor and support your local Hatzalah. Just as, a, as an additional side point, I just want to make a comment that a friend of mine was looking for a home, and he couldn't decide on a neighborhood. He couldn't decide where he should live. And one of his criteria for the neighborhoods is who had Hatzalah and who did not. So shout out to them. Anyway, my next guests are in the are in the studio, and I'm completely humbled. I am completely humbled because tennis is something I really wish I could play. I really wish. I mean, Coach, we'll talk to you about this in a second. I really wish I was good at tennis because it's the coolest sport. But frankly, I am god awful. I I can't even fake it. I can't even pretend that I can hit anything. But I want to let everyone know what. Um, members of the YU tennis team and, of course, the athletics director at Yeshiva University are doing here. This week, it was actually very exciting. Yeshiva University's men's tennis team won the Skyline Conference Championship, and they have become the first Yeshiva team to earn a berth into double uh, the NCAA Championship. And that is that's huge. The team earned the berth after the Maccabees beat Mount St. Mary's College in 5-1 in the championship round of the 2014 Skyline Conference postseason tournament, and with that, they earned the conference's automatic berth into the NCAA Division III playoffs. Three people we have with us in the studio today are Coach Ira Miller. We have also the team captain, who, by the way, looks like, I mean, you look like you're 12, and that's great, but this is Jeremy Seftel, he's the team captain, and also Mr. Joe Bednarsh, he's the athletic director at Yeshiva University. So good morning, everybody. Thank you so much. We have Mr. Bednarsh on first. Good morning, Joe. Good morning. How are you? Great. Thanks so much for having us on. No, totally my pleasure. You guys have gotten, there's a lot going on at the athletics department this week, um, but we're going to, we're going to focus mainly on tennis. If we get a comment in at the end about basketball, that's fine, but right now I'm really focused on tennis. So this is enormous. This is absolutely huge. And by the way, Coach, I, I mean, we're going to have time together, and I think we're going to go down the block afterwards and get a couple of rackets and have some fun. Or you can just tell me, Miriam, you're totally beyond my help, which is possible. But Col- but props to you because this is an enormous feat. So let's talk about that for a second. This is this is uh, amazing. Uh, right. It's it's the culmination of everything we've been trying to do, and and all the people that have come through YU, the administrators, the athletic department, and the student athletes. You know, we 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 take ourselves very seriously, and it's a legitimate program, a professional program. And to be able to reach this point and make such a historic uh, achievement, it, it, I have no words. I'm at a loss for words of how proud I am of the team, how proud I am of the university. Right. No, absolutely. And by the way, as an alum, I mean, of course, we're all we're thrilled and we're excited, and it's it's enormous. I mean, we take pride. I take pride in the Maccabees and the basketball team specifically because my nephew's on the team, and so anything that goes on, we're all excited at home. But tennis is an incredible sport that is also a very um, – it's a very personal sport because it's one – it can be one-on-one, it's two-on-two. It's not a massive team, but somehow or another, as a team, you all came together and you performed at a level that earns you this berth, which is incredible. If we could give um, Coach Miller – Good morning, Coach Miller. Good morning. Thank How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having us. Uh, no, totally my pleasure. You know, Coach, for somebody who was just um, announced as being hired January 29th of this year, it's not a bad turnaround, Coach. Yeah, that, that <laughs> was exciting. I don't uh, know what you're going to do next year, Coach, but um, but this is incredible. And you have a long history of, of, of tennis success. 
Yes, uh, I've been coaching for over 20 years. Uh, I was at Drew University for seven, which is a Division three school, and at Fairleigh Dickinson and Teaneck for over 15 years, which is a Division one school. And how does this compare? Um, it never gets old. Uh, it's always exciting. Uh, I, I, each year, anytime it happens, it's uh, always a wonderful experience. And coaching is coaching. It's just... It's not necessarily what you get at the end, but it's the idea of having your team uh, uh, understand what it's going to take to train hard, to buy into what you want to do, and have them play your best. So how could you ever get tired of that? And you also were inducted into the Fairleigh Dickinson University Hall of Fame in 2004, and your 2001 men's team at Drew is also in the Drew's Hall of Fame. Yes. um, The Drew team uh, that was inducted was a team that started a streak of almost 200 straight conference matches won without losing and 13 straight conference championship. Incredible. I was part of the first five before I left, so they honored the very first team. Uh, and it was a great honor also to be inducted as a coach at uh, FDU Hall of Fame. But I imagine that coming to Yeshiva, where there's a dual curriculum, where the boys are you know, all sporting yarmulkes and, and representing on a totally different level, makes this a different kind of team than the one that you're used to? Well, um, Or is an athlete an athlete? Well, an athlete is an athlete. Uh, it was exciting for me because I've al- always coached men and women, and it was one of the reasons why uh, I left Fairly because I was looking for a job just to focus on one team. So that was exciting for me. I think it made it uh, extra special for the team because um, they have to work under uh, circumstances that are a little more difficult than your average college student. Uh, having uh, the Hebrew Studies curriculum, we practiced 9 to 11 at night because they were in class you know, to 8 o'clock over Passover break, we actually had almost two-week break where we could not practice. They were away for the holiday. And we came back, had one practice, and then played the semifinals the next day. Wow. So that made it even more difficult. uh, But they were prepared and they were ready. And I think uh, they did what they could do when they were at home uh, to, to come prepared. Yeah, they were playing ping pong in their basement. Jeremy, let's get Jeremy um, in front of the mic for a second. Good morning, Jeremy. Good morning. How are you? I am very well. I'm not exhausted from playing tennis from 9 to 11 at night or just coming back from, you know, sitting at the Seder and all of a sudden having to perform in a semis. Tell me what it's like to be captain of this team. Um, good question, actually. Um, it's exciting, actually, for me to be a captain because there's so many pl- different kinds of players, very talented players. I wouldn't say I'm necessarily the best, but... Working together with all these players makes it makes this team just something so special because everyone has a different talent and everyone's in a certain position so that they can make this team really the best that they can, that well, it can be. I would argue, by the way, that Michael Ruzioni, who was the captain of the U.S. men's hockey team uh, during the Olympics in 1980, was not the best player on the team, but it was his leadership skills, which is why Herb Brooks named him to that position in the first place. It's not because I'm a sports buff. It's because <laughs> I'm obsessed with that movie. Um, but that's neither here nor there. You're a senior. You are graduating this year? Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. Well, I, I, yeah. our fingers are crossed our for you. But I'm, crossed. I'm, Thank you. Yeah, I'm thinking you're looking like a shoe in what What's your major? Um, my major is business management and entrepreneurship. And where are you going with that? That's a very good question. Thank you. <laughs> a million dollar question everyone's been asking me. Um, I, I'm uh, sorry, I didn't know that your mom was listening. We, we can I skip hope, that. I qu- hope not. Now. We can <laughs> skip that question if you want. No, we could keep it. Um, I'm looking to apply to like administrative jobs, something where my leadership on the tennis team can actually help me on my endeavors in the future with some workplace somewhere, hopefully maybe in New York City. There is a definite correlation between um, athletics and sportsmanship and business entrepreneurship. There 
there is there is always there's always correlations between I guess work ethic and team on teams and sports and working work ethics in the uh, field out I guess outside in the real world. Yeah, I mean, Joe, let's let's turn to you for a second. How does it feel to look at a team like this and um and, and use them? I would say as a as an example of what can still be accomplished with a dual curriculum. What can still be accomplished when you have somebody who's studying, you're in Sims, I imagine, right? Correct. Who's in Sci Sims and, and has a loaded, loaded um, schedule and is, and is going to Minion and is still focused on business and entrepreneurship, but can still make it into the NCAA, you know, tournament. That's incredible. It's it's amazing. Uh, I truly believe that there are no other student-athletes in any other school out there that can do what our kids can do. I mean, getting up, going to davening, going to their Jewish studies classes, taking their college courses, practicing at night, and then first starting their homework. Right. Plus the restrictions. I mean, these guys came back from two weeks at, uh, during Pesach. I mean, it's very easy to say two weeks away to people that don't understand what's going on on Pesach Correct. and all the matzah and all the potatoes. And, yeah. You know, you'll come back, you're 10 pounds heavier. It's a little bit harder to move cross court. Forget it. I'm running a half marathon this Sunday. And I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to pull this off. I'm still looking around, you know, the, 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 yeah, exactly. The potato cookle I had the second night at the Seder. But, um, you're right. It is a testament and also I'm sure to their commitment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it's not easy. It's not easy. And I think, you know, piggybacking on something Jeremy said and, and something that you uh, discussed, that's why it's so important to employers. You know, you want to see that somebody can be part of a team, that somebody can manage their time appropriately, and that somebody can succeed uh, at so many different things at such a high level. Is it an understatement, or I shouldn't say that, is it um, an exaggeration to call this a historic moment in, in the university's history? Not at all. Not at all. Um, I, I would hope it's not an exaggeration to call it the first of many. Mm, that's nice. No pressure, Coach, by the way. No, no pressure. You don't look like you sweat that much, Coach. No, that's the advantage of being so skinny. <laughs> You've already it – doesn't, it doesn't affect you in the least bit. Um, one of the things that uh, experience in any field brings is that you do have a certain ability to anticipate things that are going to happen, and I think that was a key to it. I think the players themselves were very calm, relatively calm on the day of the finals because they had been clued into what was going to happen, what it was about, and, uh, you know, I think that relaxed them. And so, um, you know, that that helps me look calm and collected, although uh, it, the stomach's always in knots. Right. Well, what were your concerns, by the way, knowing that you had this tournament two week, uh, right after a two-week break? Um, it was a concern because it was a two-week break, plus we, uh, because we have to practice at night from 9 to 11, we're indoors all the time. So uh, we rarely get to practice or play outdoors, and this, our fi- if we made it to the finals, it was going to be an outdoor match. And as a matter of fact, we uh, this spring were undefeated except for one loss to Mount St. Mary's, the team we beat. They had beaten us 5-4, and one of the concerns was playing at their place outdoors in the wind and so on. So it was a concern, um, but you try to turn the negative into the positive. And when we did lose to them 5-4, the first thing I said to them after we huddled up, I said, uh, I said, well, all the pressure shifted to them. I said, and this is going to make winning that much sweeter. Mm. It was. I, I can imagine. Was that a, was was this win a surprise, or you guys felt you had a lock? There's never a lock in tennis. You know, uh, it's. Uh, it, Anything could happen. The, the thing about it is that any player can always affect play. 
you, when you're playing your opponent. You could be in a team sport and decide you're getting all pumped up and nobody passes you the ball. Mm. But you always get the ball in tennis, so um, anything can happen. No, it wasn't surprising. Uh, what was... Uh, I'm going to have to tweet out that line, by the way. <laughs> that is a great line. We're going to have to pull that up on the archive. You, you always get the ball in tennis. That is a great line. Anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt. What was joyful about it, and this is not an exaggeration, is we played our best match of the year. Mm. And to play your best match of the year on the biggest game day is all you can ask. And that was a big reason why the players were so thrilled, not just that we won, but how we won. Um, uh, we turned around a second doubles loss that we had lost originally. We won, which Jeremy was part of. And uh, Jeremy actually, uh, we they everyone played the same opponent in singles, and Jeremy played a guy who beat him, I think six three six two, and Jeremy won six two six one. Wow! So the idea of coming back, payback. Yes. Yeah. You know, <laughs> don't uh, finish the line. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, like they say, you know, everybody gets knocked down, but it's how you get up that counts. Right. Well, that speaking to that, let's talk about that for a second, Jeremy. Um, in terms of the doubles match, how do you? As um as uh, as a teammate, or I should say, as a as one of the one of the pairs, uh, function differently than you do when you're in, in terms of in terms of your offense, in terms of your game. How do you function differently on the court than you do when you play by yourself? Well, first, my partner is actually a tremendous player, so it's easier to relax when you're on the court with him because you know you can trust him more. You play with the same person each time. Um, for the for the last few matches, I play with a new partner. His name's Dmitry Lebedev. And um, he's a very good player, and so the fact that I was able to rely on him more and re- it relaxed me, and my strokes became more natural. Mm. So I mean, playing with a doubles partner is always fun; it's always great, and you, you can rely on someone else. And there's always camaraderie, ha- like high fives, all of that. Right. So when you're on your own, it's like it's a little different. It's a little different, and um, you have to rely on yourself more. And it's it's really up to you to pump yourself up and focus as much as you can. So I guess those are the main two differences, really. Or to pull yourself out when you're, you know, when you're, you're down, or Correct. exactly when you're struggling, etc. Um, that, that's that's really fascinating. So talk to me a little bit about Dimitri. I know he is not here, and that's fine. But you speak so highly of him. Uh, I would imagine from his name that he was not born in Woodmere. Uh, correct. There you go. Um, so he's, uh, I mean, I guess maybe, Joe, you can speak to this, or Coach Miller. Uh, what is Dimitri's background? I, I want to actually also ask you about your background. When have you been playing since? Um, I mean, I've been playing off and on. I played throughout high school and middle school. I took lessons when I was pretty young. But um, I guess you could say about 12 years I've been playing tennis. Wow. I, I, the reason I'm curious about Dimitri's background is simply because when you work together so closely and you depend on someone else, especially in a competitive environment like that where you are working with an opposing team, there has to be that chemistry that makes the two of you work. So right. I was, yeah. you know, so clearly you guys didn't go to the same high school, am I right? You're, there we go. Right. You didn't play <laughs> together in the same playgrounds, etc. But somehow or another, there was a click that happened that you are able to really, uh, you know, um, succeed to to this level with a partner that you have not been with your whole life. Right. I guess it was through the practices and through the mutual respect I guess we had of each of each other's games was really what helped us build the foundation of our success. I mean, he's he was a great player and it was so much fun hitting with him in practice. It up he upped my level of playing and so through that we were able to overcome any really obstacles we face any teams coach can we talk to that for a second in terms of the level of respect for you between players and the level of respect that the players have for the sport itself well um firstly let me just uh uh 
piggyback on Dimitri. Um, one of the, uh, actually two of the main reasons we had such success was that uh, we had two first-year players who transferred in from Division Two schools, Igal Moskov, who played number one, and Dima Lebedev, played number two, and they're tremendous players. Wow. And they really shifted the whole personality and landscape of the team by having uh, a, a players that uh, Egal was player of the year when uh, both of them went undefeated in singles and uh, both were first team all conference and they were just such a huge boost not only because they were winning but they allowed everyone else to play a little lower down the lineup at a place where they were comfortable and they were just such a huge addition and and uh, they uh, uh Egal is from uh, Canada uh, originally and uh, Dima his family's originally from the Ukraine, but mm. also settled in Israel. Wow. And uh, they've been a great addition and, and really work hard. And that speaks to what uh, Mr. Bednar said about the department, their recruiting efforts, their outreach to you know, be able to reach out uh, nationally and bring in these top players is really what made a big difference. As far as the camaraderie, um, we spent uh, two weeks before we actually were able to go indoors and practice having chalk talks and fitness sessions, wow. which is very unusual because I was Conditioning. Well, to the chalk talks, we're not the condition, but normally I would be with the team in the fall, and that's where you sort of lay the foundation of, of our the philosophy, how we practice, what we're going to do, and so on. And since I didn't get to do that, we would meet, and we talked a lot about what makes good team chemistry, uh, what it takes to uh, to think about goals, establish them, what it's going to take, how we define success, uh, things like that, and also how to play the game, you know, how to be a thinking tennis player out there. And they really bonded during that, and it just Amazing. built from there. Amazing. Well, props to you, Coach, because clearly that bonding worked, and especially to you, Jeremy. I mean, you're, you're proof of the pudding that whatever Coach Miller taught you, you, you clearly were listening absolutely, that day. Absolutely. There's got to be there's got to be unbounding love for the coach right now. Sure, for sure, he's taught us everything. We know. <laughs> We're thankful to him, absolutely. Uh, I can imagine. Now back to Joe for a second. This was a good hire, I'd have to argue. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it was it was a coup. It was a, a, right. a steal for us. Um, one of the things that we try to do is we we really do try to bring in the best coaches possible because. Our student athletes don't have a lot of time and they're giving a lot of their time and they're giving a lot up either socially or a little bit of extra study time or in some people's cases, as I look at Jeremy, uh, now we're on the Xbox. Um, <laughs> Everyone has their releases. That's right. It's all good. That's right. So we, we, we do. We owe it. We owe it to the student athletes to bring in the right coaches and Ira was absolutely the right coach and I, I couldn't be more pleased. And I just in terms of bringing in new coaches and hires, et cetera, I do want to Give a shout out to Elliot Steinmetz, who was recently named as the new coach of the YU men's uh, Maccabee basketball team. He'll be starting in the fall, I imagine. Well, he he's starting already. He's he's recruiting. Starting. Oh, he's, he's recruiting, right? Absolutely. Okay, that's a good point. He is recruiting. Um, he is taking the place of our beloved coach Halper, and he has big shoes to fill. But we are confident that Elliot will step up. So you're excited about that as well. I'm excited. Uh, he does. He does have tremendous shoes to fill. Anytime you come uh, and you take over after someone who's been there for over 40 years. The history, the associations, that, that's, that's not easy. And you're under, you're a under legacy. a microscope. It's absolutely a legacy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
uh, one of the things that he said that we really liked is, you know, you have to be respectful of the legacy. And the first thing he was going to do was reach out to Coach Alpert and talk to him, which is absolutely the right thing to do. Absolutely. Obviously, it's Elliot's team now, and he's going to have to move them into the future. But to you have to embrace the history of the team. Right. Absolutely. And so we wish, we certainly wish Elliot the best of luck. Everyone in Woodmere is certainly pulling for him, and we are looking forward to a fantastic season. As my nephew is graduating next year, folks, he'll be a senior Please God, he'll be starting. But nevertheless, we have to have a great year next year because we gotta we gotta finish on a high note. Well, Jeremy, Coach Miller, and of course Joe Bednarch from Yeshiva University and the YU tennis team. Props to you guys. Good luck as you move forward. Thank when you, is thanks. when is that, by the way? Uh, May fifth, I guess we find out who we're playing. Uh huh. It's a selection Monday. Right. And okay. then. And then we'll be uh, playing on May 9th. Wow. All right. Well, May 9th, can we get tickets? Can somebody help get me in? Where is that? Yeah, absolutely. we got to find out. We don't know where it is. We don't know who we're playing. There's, there's a lot up in the air right now. Okay. The only thing we do know is that the NCAA is going to make accommodations for Shabbos. Amazing. And then I'm sure accommodation will be made by the NCAA for me as well, since I will be traveling with the team. I'm looking forward to being with you guys there. I, I think they're almost obligated, and you're almost obligated to travel with the team. Um, yeah. By the way, I'm so about traveling these days. I know Avrami. He's giving me dirty looks. I really got to close up. Anyway, gentlemen. Great job. Thank you so much. We are, as an alum, we are incredibly proud. Keep doing your great job. Thank you very much. You. You've been listening to That's Life here on the Nahum Siegel Network. I'm Miriam L. Wallach. We're going to bring up the Maccabees in the background. That's the Maccabees, not the Maccabees. Let's not confuse that. We are listening to Burn in the background. We'll be pulling that up. Thank you, Avrami, as we continue our shout-out to Yeshiva University and uh, to Nahum's interview with them this morning. Let's go through the lineup for the rest of the day so you know what, what to expect what to look forward to and what not to miss. We have a full afternoon of programming for you right after That's Life. It's the live lunch with Nahum. That's from 11 to 1, followed by the stunt show at 1 p.m. That's hosted by Mark Zamek. Mark is joined this week by three colleagues. They discuss happiness, what makes them happy, and what they do when they're not happy. And no experts. They're not experts, folks. It's just a serious conversation about a serious topic. So make sure not to miss that. At 2 p.m., it's Throwback Thursdays. Encoring a Jam and AM from years past. By the book, Encore at 5 p.m. Michael Fragan at 6. And Charlie Birdhout at 7, wrapping up the lineup. Join Nachum tomorrow morning from 6 to 9 as he hosts Jam and the AM. Live here on the stream, NachumSiegel.com, Jam and the AM.org. And, of course, Naomi Table for 2 tomorrow morning. An updated 2014 schedule is on our website, NachumSiegel.com. My thanks to my guests, Yael Unterman. You can go to Amazon and YaelUnterman.com for more information about her work. And to the members of the YU tennis team, Coach Ira Miller. We have Jeremy and, of course, Athletics Director Joe Bednarsh. With that, I do leave you with the Maccabees burn off of their new album, One Day More. Speak to you guys next week. The live luncheon starts in just a few minutes. That's life, everybody. Bye, guys.
can put it out, out, out. We can let it up, up, up. So they can put it out, out, out. We can let it up, up, up. So they can put it out, out. When they lost, do you know? They don't know what they heard. Strike the bell. We gonna let it burn, 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 burn. We gonna let it burn.